Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is Eugene. Uh, I am here with Sruli Rekt. Uh, Sruli is one of the most interesting people one of the most interesting brains I've ever met in my life. I feel like I'm saying that a lot on this podcast, which is a good thing. Uh, but he, uh, he is a multidisciplinary artist, and I was introduced to his work as a, fa- as a fashion designer. And when I quickly realized that he is not a fashion designer, he is much more. And uh, we've been we've known each other for over 10 years now, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I've always been incredibly curious about Sruli's work because it seems like it comes from another planet. And so I'm curious about minds that create things that I find fascinating and even unsettling. And, uh, Sruli's done so much of that. So welcome, Sruli. Hi, Eugene. Thanks for having me. That's uh, a, it's a very kind introduction, not, not in any way offensive or hurtful. Oh, oh good, well, we're just getting good. started. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. I, I was wondering, um, you know, who was really here? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, but you know, it's, it's honest truth. Uh, wherever I've seen your work and, and the first time I saw your work, uh, and I never told you that because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Um, that's before I found out that you have a pretty thick skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, and again, I want you to take this as a compliment. I thought this guy shouldn't be doing fashion. He should be doing I mean, that's, industry. That's the first thing you ever said to me. And you've, you've been pretty oh, consistent with the, oh. with the, yeah, yeah, I mean, not, not like in the very first meeting, but pretty quickly after you were fairly, uh, consistent in your message of, uh, stop making clothing, which I think for most people I would be offended by. And I think most people would be offended by being told that from you. However, you've always been incredibly supportive. I think journalism is a difficult situation because you have an agenda and then you have an agenda. You know, you have your personal agenda of things that you like. You have the mm-hmm. agenda of the people that you're writing for. Criticism is a different thing to journalism again, probably. I really, sure. really don't know the definitions. But but I think when it comes from you, you've always been super supportive of the work, whether you liked it or not. You know, I think yeah. you've you've championed it in a way – and I can tell from the article that you post whether you do like it or not, because you either post directly the work or you actually talk about it. And that's a little bit of a giveaway, uh, which I like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the art of the roast, you know, like the old comedic <laughs> roast where, where people who know you so well know exactly how to pierce the core and offend you in a way that is essentially intimate, right? It's like family, you know, family knows how to do that. But if someone can... Uh, Insult is not the right word, but, you know, uh, dig at the work in a particular way that makes me laugh, I am untouched. So the yeah. more you offend me, the more I really like it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope I've done nothing of the sort. And I, I want to clarify here that when I, 
I meant that as a compliment. What what I meant to say is that I don't think you you should be in the fashion system. I don't think they'll close. The clothes were meant to exist within the fashion system. And what I mean by that is, you know, producing collections, setting up a showroom, selling them to stores, hoping that people will buy them in any meaningful way that will create a body of fashion work that is commercially viable and will earn you a living. Well, those uh, two things are generally opposed to creating good work. Management and creativity are not the same. It's not that they're the same brain, but they're very, very different endeavors to enjoy. And if you want to take pleasure from creating or enjoy what you're actually doing, uh, the, the commercialization of fashion is very counterproductive and actually counterintuitive to creating good work. Um, I think, you know, you and I spoke early on in the pandemic uh, that the pandemic would be a game changer. You know, it would it would clean out brands that didn't need to be there and creatives who really believed in it would buckle down. But essentially what we saw was that the brands that survived were the ones that were partially owned by backers. You know, the backers can keep the brand going. And so you have a, a big division in the business of fashion between uh, independent brands where Individuals have to wear many hats at once. And then the larger brands, which are phenomenally successful, like the ones that you write about frequently, where the the creative can actually take space or distance from the anxiety of management and really get into creating beautiful work. We never achieved that. We never even came close to achieving that kind of balance as an independent brand. And when I look back on the fashion work, it was an incredible amount of output in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. It was rarely output that met the standard that I was hoping for. We were never going to be, you know, a McQueen runway level because the amount of money that goes into that is, I mean, it's millions just for the show. Of course. Right. So (laughs) doing, um, doing a brand like ours on favors and, you know, pay you later and a team of interns it doesn't it doesn't get you anywhere near yeah that, that's what i'm saying i mean that the clothes were too challenging and too creative to to be scaled meaningfully and but what i saw in them are elements of architecture and industrial design uh and just a way of thinking that's not that's not fashion you know what i mean because they came to me from a mind that was not a mind of a fashion designer. It was a mind of a product design. And this is why I told you, like, you're going to be amazing at making all kinds of things. And you have been. So. I often wonder why that take is. It as a compliment. I, look back at the <laughs> I do. I always did. I always take yeah. it as a compliment. You know, every, every time we talk, which is sometimes six months apart, sometimes a year apart and sometimes, you know, a few days in a row, uh, you know, your feedback and your advice is it's important to people like me, people like yourself who understand uh, objects and the, it's kind of hard to say this without sounding like you're doing a TED talk, right? But the body and the object are intrinsically tied and they're tied in different ways for everybody. 
that we are an object-oriented species. We don't exist without objects. And if, if you take it a step further, every single object around you is essentially a prosthetic. It helps mm -hmm. you do something else, right? Right. So yeah. whether it's, it's, it's clothing, whether... Exactly. And yeah. the, dawn of, the dawn of civilization, right? I don't mean the, the cognitive revolution or the agricultural revolution. I mean, the moment when we look back at when did we really become or start to become the thing that we are? And the current, the current thought is about 100,000 years ago when we start burying the body. And the next thing is burying the body with objects. Mm -hmm. So pretty much for 100,000 years, we have been completely tied to the things that we own. The distance between us and those objects, whether we have them, whether we don't have them, whether we want to make them, whether we just use them, we are an object-oriented species. And one of the more interesting things is when you look at the division between the way people approach fashion design or the way people approach um, industrial product design, so objects on the body or objects that the body uses. We'll just define it a little bit differently because yeah. when you wear something, you're, you're not actively manipulating things. Right. So if we look at designers who are the way you're describing it, right? Like this designer approaches fashion like architecture or this designer approaches it like product design. I think one of the things that was always missing for me was my personal body relation to the outfit. Dressing up is a, it's a key part of fashion, right? That character that you create through the clothing that you wear is essentially, um, it's tied to the story that you tell yourself that day and the overarching yeah, it's, story. It's, like a sem it's, a semiotic, it's a semiotic construct, right? Totally. I mean, it's this is what my thesis was me. on about about 20 years ago about how the language of clothing is essentially words and sentences and how none of it is actually honest because we use them as illusions or manipulations of storytelling. But I never really designed clothing for me. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I, what I guess I saw was that all of the designers that I knew were designing clothing and putting it on straight away and going out in it or wearing it or doing something with it. It was about their own uh, expression of identity. I never really did that. Mm -hmm. And so the object always had this kind of distance between me and that. And that's probably why it became more, is objectified the right word? Or, or yeah, 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 an absolutely. object rather than, yeah. rather than an outfit. Um, that was never my strength. My strength was never building looks or collections. Meg always sort of came in and styled or Flavia or something like this. Um, and that's probably why you see more of a strength in form or drape rather than, I don't know, some other, some other thing that people actually want. I mean, <laughs> one of the, yeah. I think one of the moments that, that really stands out to me was in about sort of collection six or seven, a buyer asked me, do you have more of those black t-shirts from last season? <laughs> and it was a kind of like a moment where I was like, well, firstly, I'm not sure this guy really knows what I have made, what I do make and what I want to make, you know, past, present, future. 
um, where you come from, where you are, and where you're going. Because I don't think I've ever made a black T-shirt. And if what he wants is the entry level of an idea, right? Entry level being like the T-shirt is the most basic thing to make, apparently. Right. But brands at our independent size are still having to sell them for 300 euro retail because of the minimum order quantities. Yeah. Um, it was a moment where I realized, uh, this is not for me. <laughs> this, this, particular, <laughs> this particular moment where this dude wants to buy like, you know, three black T-shirts and I feel like I have to make them because he asked and have to send them to Italy. I just, yeah. this doesn't Well, that's right. exactly what I said, that, that your clothes never fit in within the fashion system. You know, they, and, and you're absolutely right. The ob- objectness of the clothes has always overpowered every other aspect of the clothes. You know, I feel like your clothes were first and foremost objects. And then the people sort of came after, you know. I'm not saying it's an afterthought because they are clothes. They're made for people. But I feel like you're always fascinated with clothes as objects first and not as clothes per se. Yeah, I'm not really sure where the people came from. Uh, clearly... Uh, websites like yours publishing the work brought an audience. Um, but we were we were very quickly grouped into this dark artisan mystique for reasons that were probably more um, provocative rather than dark or artisanal. I'm not sure. Like yeah. I never really spent a lot of time object dyeing something and then enzyme washing it and then shibori wrinkling it and then washing and then repeating the process. It's a, it's a part of a system uh, of design behavior that's not iterative in development. It's more like a, um, like a clinical trial, you know, which I find incredibly boring. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have the kind of mind to do the same thing twice. So yeah. the brands that do this sort of, um, this sort of work, taping and dyeing, I really respect the amount of dedication that goes into developing that kind of thing. Uh, but it's not something I could ever do. And because it's super beautiful, right? It's about creating beauty. I'm not sure that that's what I've ever tried to do. I've always been attracted to things that make me incredibly uncomfortable. And instead yeah. of asking why, I don't really ask why very often. I was just thinking about that this morning. What am I going to talk to Eugene about? I don't have a why. You know, I listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of people talk about their why. Yeah. Uh, my, my why is overly simplistic, right? Because it excites me or because yeah. um, I'm enthusiastic about it or because it looks dope, right? And you can't really stand in front of an audience and simplify it. Maybe you can. Maybe that's what, maybe it's a bit refreshing, but. I, I don't think it's <laughs> ever that simple. I mean, even when you say, because I want to, that want, that desire has to come from somewhere, right? Um, and I would disagree with you that you're not concerned with beauty because you make a lot of really beautiful things and uh, the, the luxury of choice exhibition, everything you've made for that, it's actually, they're gorgeous objects. They're really beautiful, which makes them all the more unsettling because luxury of choice or 
19 objects you made for assisted suicide. And when we, I think, when most people think of suicides, uh, it's ugly. Right? In a sense, I mean, I, I want to clarify that the the word to use there is probably uh, euthanasia or self-deliverance. Uh, suicide is a term that doesn't usually relate to the medical side of things um, or mm -hmm. pain or, um, you know, palliative care. <laughs> Um, not to like correct you, but just to kind of like make a bit of a no. A bit of a difference actually, it makes sense, things, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 it is different. And there is an object so, that you can carry with you for your entire life that sort of grounds you in the idea that we're not here forever, and mm -hmm. that object should be beautiful. I mean, so they, you know, Damien Gelé, the the choreographer, um, he put it really, really well once he was talking about why he loves Japan. And one of the things he talked about is that everything is a moment. Everything is special, right? Because a volcano or a tidal wave or something like this could actually happen at pretty much any moment. So it means that the, the, the present moment becomes much more meaningful than, well, I guess not, right? So everything becomes beautiful. Everything becomes ceremonial everything sort of focuses down on the behavior. So mm -hmm. the thing with the, the luxury of choice collection is I have two chronic illnesses and they massively affect my day and night, right? And most of my, well, a significant portion of my day is essentially just management and dealing with these things. And they've been, you know, chronic means you've had them since, you know, birth, gradually. Right. And so this idea of death has never been the same thing for me as other people. Um, it's probably why I am so like time focused, you know, trying to get everything done so quickly. But also what it comes down to is that when death comes, it will be wearing, it will be wearing a familiar face, right? Mm -hmm. I, will, I will know who that is. I know how it will happen, more or less. You know, something else may happen in the meantime. So if you, if you look at this incredibly basic uh, description of art and design, right, where art asks a question, design solves a problem. So if, if right. just for the, the sake of this, this conversation, yeah. we look at art as asking questions and design as aiming to solve problems, there's kind of like a sweet spot in the middle that I really like. Making a designed object that also asks a question. So mm -hmm. luxury of choice aims to, aims to do that. So if, if anyone listening doesn't know, the luxury of choice is, uh, I think it's like 19 objects for self-deliverance. Self-deliverance is euthanasia. Euthanasia is choosing to die because life or the, the experience of living as a result of uh, medical conditions is, is beyond, um, you know, doable. I don't know the word anymore. Uh, I'm sort of out of speed of talking about that collection. They sort of, they happen and they disappear <laughs> into the distance. And I completely forget about all the work that I've made until I see it again. 
And it's a powerful way to ask that question. Why are we not talking about death? Why are we controlling when people can die or, you know, all the other stuff that's happening in the US right now? Mm-hmm. Choice is a choice is a really big thing. I think it re- I think I must think about choice a lot because I don't get to do what I want, right? And there's another thing that I think you may have read about, um, but it's called redirective practice. And it's a, it's a very, um, what's the word? What's the word for the edge? Um, forgotten the word now, it'll come back to me. But it's a very sort of like education system, uh, academic. It's a very academic way of talking about the, uh, the reactive way that I actually work. You know, I see something, I have a reaction. I'm like, holy shit, I got to do this thing, right? But um, mm-hmm. redirective practice, right? It's an approach to design that focuses, I'm, I'm actually going to read this one. It, it focuses not on the design of the object, but rather on the tools of engagement that help people move toward a cultural remaking. So in this case, these relational objects, these like um, objects for euthanasia, they are um, they enable performative actions which create a catalyst for change. So by showing people objects for euthanasia, it makes them talk and think about it. And by adding those objects to uh, the behavioral actions of the world, like the uh, the behavioral memory, we all have behavioral memory. We know how to open a door. We know how to do you know, open a jar. We know how to walk, these sort of things. When you add those behavioral memories into culture, you create... Uh, I forgot that word too. I should write all these words down. Um, <laughs> you create a sort of an epigenetic lineage. It becomes part of culture that we don't talk about. So there are interesting things about culture that we do talk about and interesting things that we don't talk about. At the moment, we are super into how big people's butts are. Like that's just like the most important thing on the internet right now. But we don't talk about euthanasia. We don't talk about circumcision. There are many things that we sort of gloss over that really do affect people that we just do. Circumcision is a super weird one, right? Like, why are we cutting babies' dicks? Why are we doing that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, luckily, I grew up in the good old Soviet Union, and I was spared this uh, religion-based barbarism. Uh, and I heard that sex is better. I heard sex is better. I I don't know. I don't have. You've never had sex. Comparison. I had sex a couple of times. It was good. Yeah. Uh, I, I've heard that. What I'm saying, <laughs> what I'm saying is, I don't have basis for comparison with uncircumcised, because I don't know how that feels. Anyway, no, now that you listeners right? have uh, gained uh, a lot of insight into our respective anatomies, um, it was going to come to that, wasn't it? Uh, for the sake of listeners, uh, I have an intimate relationship with Truly. What I mean is that we've How been in, the, in we've been in a sauna together, right? That's pretty intimate. I don't a, think there is no other together, designer right? I can say that I've been in, in a sauna with, right? Safely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and uh, I don't know. Has there been another journalist you've been in a sauna with? No, I don't think so. See, there you go. So No, you're my first. Thank you. 
Uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know about the rest of the world, uh, but I think in America, we don't talk about euthanasia or assisted suicide or whatnot, because we are, you know, pursuit of happiness is enshrined. It's, it's, you know, it's in, uh, gosh, uh, it's in the Declaration of Independence or Constitution. Well, that's a shame. I should know that. The culture, American culture, is built on pursuit of happiness, which is built upon an enthusiastic, sunny disposition, uh, which precludes people from speaking about negative experiences. Uh, and because people don't speak about negative experiences, um, I think that's part of why so many people are so fucked up in America is because that language is off limits in certain cultural realms. And people who do talk about it automatically become people of they're not considered exactly normal, you know, it, it, it could, and it could go one way, you know, we're going to put them into an asylum or another way they become celebrities, right? Because they're it's like activists, right? They become activists. Uh, not even activists. I'm thinking more about, you know, musicians who talk about pain, right? I'm talking about like, you know, the Kurt Cobains of this world. Um, and and it's almost it's almost a privilege that they get to have uh, to speak about pain. But by and large, you know, in pop culture, you know, it's not really, you know, like pop songs are all the same, right? All pop songs are about love, right? They're not really about death, you know. Uh, and the pain doesn't go beyond heartbreak from your lover that's where we stop as a culture so we don't really talk about other types of pain so that's the way i see it and that's why i i'm gonna go out on a limb and guess that you got a lot of flack for the luxury of choice body actually work. quite the opposite Quite the opposite. Really? Um, no one would publish it to start with, right? Well, so, that's, well, there you go. I mean, that's it. That's exactly it. I mean, the, the, the websites that have always published. Not, we published know. it, didn't we? No, no, no. No? But we but did not something. For, but not, oh, for no, this I, reason. I not for this reason. You You guys didn't publish it because... Oh, it I wasn't time to, sensitive oh, because by the time you got yeah. the images, the exhibition was over. That's, That's right. why we didn't publish That's it. That's right. But yeah. I did wrote, but I did write something for it, didn't I? I remember you wrote we did the introduction, together. which was really, really important to me that you did that. Um, exactly. Thank you. Oh, that's right. We only didn't publish it because of it's a, the exhibit was pretty much over by the time you got the pictures. I think that was the main website. websites that usually do publish it. 
they wrote to say it had triggered people in the office and they didn't want to publish it. Um, and that there were sort of press embargoes on talking about suicide. Um, I believe the first one, but the second one, not so much because most websites have already published things like uh, some other dude released a suicide machine in Switzerland, like the thing from Futurama in the opening scene. Um, so it, I think it was more to do with personal reactions, you know, people mm -hmm. who have had suicide in their life have a very, I mean, for all the right reasons, have a difficult time with sure. topics like this. It was a little underwhelming, the response. I, I was very much hoping for there to be a response, positive or negative, but there was not enough of a response. And I think it's because people don't have the language around it to present it in a way. Okay, look, the next, the next thing that I'm doing, I can reveal to you, which is probably going to be the same problem, right? Mm. The next project is, uh, you know, the, uh, the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. So the Spanish Inquisition is essentially, okay, so Jews were given an <laughs> option in, in Spain, um, leave, convert to Catholicism, I think it was Catholicism, or yeah, die. Or die. Yeah, a lot of people left, a lot of people converted, and a lot of people died. The people who converted and stayed there, they were called the conversos, obviously the, the converted ones, right? And... Within that group of people, there were some who really did adopt the new lifestyle and just leave Judaism behind. And there were others who practiced Judaism in, in secret, and they were called the Crypto-Jews. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated with the Crypto-Jews. The Crypto-Jews have yeah, a whole which, heap of... In, in yeah, which in 2022 has a very different definition, right? But we're not going to go into totally. Which is funny, right? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, crypto Jews, not what you guys are because thinking. Because every time I pitch this, people like, it takes them a moment to figure out we're not talking about currency here. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's a basically Bitcoin with the Star of David on the other side. Is there actually one? Is there actually one? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Anyway, be. but let, let, let's go back to the original crypto Jews who practice Judaism in secret while adopting... Right, so nominally Catholicism. Okay, so you, do you have family that was part of this or you've just read a lot about uh, it? No, I'm Ashkenazi, so I don't think. I think You're that Ashkenazi. was Sephardic okay. Jews. Yeah. Sephardim, yeah, yeah. Okay, the thing that always fascinated me about it since I f was first told about it by a, a family that had directly descended uh, from, from the conversos was the tradecraft that they employed to continue practicing Judaism while presenting as Catholic. And they would do these super cool things like, I mean, I guess it wasn't super cool at the time, right? But they would light the Sabbath candles in the basement, inside a cupboard, inside a jug, right? So no one would see it, but they could still perform those rituals. And they would do things like dirty their hands on purpose so that it looked like uh, they hadn't washed them before eating food because only the Jews did this. And there were several other things. I mean, the list goes on, right? But what, what's interesting about that is it tells you that uh, ritual is a very important part 
of what we do. So one way of looking at ritual is ritual ensures outcome. And this is across the entire animal species. Every single type of animal has ritualistic behavior that comes from the, uh, the epigenetic lineage that the animal just knows how to do this thing and always does this thing. Like dogs walking in a circle before getting into a bed. Uh, it's the only example I can think of right now. But animals do things like pacing uh, and other things that sort of give them a sense of presence. They are self-aware in a different way. So Jews are in basements. They're not cutting foreskins. They're doing all these strange things. And one of the things that I imagined was like, what happens to things like the foreskin? You know, obviously, you can't do that anymore because everyone can see it. So there's this really interesting arc of the object meaning of the crucifix. 2,000 years ago, the crucifix was a tool. It was a way people were hung up and, you know, killed. It then became a religious fetish symbol. The, the crucifix becomes the representation of Christ, the representation of the religion. And then about, what, 20 years ago, Madonna uses it in a stage show. The entire world freaks out and it transitions again into fashion item. You can then mm -hmm. now have it on a T-shirt or a zipper or whatever, right? And so I start to think about how would the same arc work within that crypto-Jewish environment? It begins as religious symbology, which probably came from the Iron Age cult of Judaism, which was this, you know, like group of people running around believing in something they couldn't see. And, you know, cutting dicks. This whole dick cutting thing is super weird. I mean, that began <laughs> as a torture. That began as torture when armies would capture other people and they would, you know, um, humiliate them by removing their foreskins. So it starts as, again, like a torture practice, like the, the crucifix, the cross. Then it becomes religious symbology, circumcision, a bris. But it hasn't yet transcended into the fashion item. Oh, truly. <laughs> so I'm thinking. Ever pioneering, ever pioneering. How do we move the foreskin as a prosthetic object into that space, right? If Patrick is still listening, he's probably giggling right now. Oh, you, <laughs> so you're going to get you know, a lot of like, giggles, don't worry. <laughs> so that's, that's the next uh, thing that, I mean, there are several different projects. I don't know if we'll talk about them, but the next kind of thing that will be similar to that luxury of choice is, is this collection of chosen objects, probably leading with the, the idea of the, like what happens when the prosthetic foreskin becomes fashionable in the same way the crucifix is. Because I find it's the only way to talk about it is to make the object. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you'll get people talking about it. Yeah, um, I'm not fitting you for one if you're going to ask that next. <laughs> no, I'm good. Mine is intact. Oh, yeah, you've still got one, right? <laughs> so that's the, sort of, that's the sort of thing that interests me, is making an object that sort of works its way into culture. It solves one problem by asking a question. It says, you know, why are we still doing this kind of thing? Or why aren't we allowing this with euthanasia? Why are we 
circumcising when we don't need to. I, I do think about Darwinian evolution in the sense that, um, how does he describe it? He talks about it as, well, to condense it, he talks about evolution as physical fitness through random mutation. Something randomly involves, it becomes a more dominant trait, and you know the cycle continues. So there are like two things that the naked ape that we are, the human male, persistently cuts off, but we have never evolved away from having it, and that's beards and foreskins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess body hair in general, right? It's a strange one, right? Yeah. Well, body hair in general is a strange one, isn't it? Did you ever read The Naked Ape? No, we don't. Nope. No. I recommend it. It was a, a zoologist study of the human as an animal. He wrote this in the 60s and it created a huge uproar. He was the first one to say, you know, humans are an animal. Um, we are, we would be classified as the naked ape because we're the only one in the simian line that doesn't have hair. And he said really provocative things that I don't think he realized were provocative at the time, but, you know, he talked about uh, why breasts evolved, he talked about facial hair, he talked about lips and noses and all the shapes of the body as, you know, parts of sexual signaling in a way that I don't think people were ready for. But very interesting. It's not really provable, but he looks at us as the evolution of them, the apes that went down from an overcrowded forest to the shoreline and then evolved to be an aquatic ape species. So our noses changed for swimming we lost the hair from the swimming, and then uh, parts of the body develop because other parts of the body are underwater. And then we start facing each other, and then that sort of evolves into front-facing intercourse, and then why the face essentially mimics the genitals. We always go here. What is that? It's always dicks, death, and destruction. Every uh, single time we talk. It's you, man. I got news. It's, it's you. Just it's me. not me. <laughs> yes, yes. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's been uh, like since our first conversation. And yeah. yeah. Look, I, this is I how can stop else anytime. Really, no, no, it's fine. This is how else really and I are intimate. I just realized, well, you can't see it because you guys can't see the camera. One of my tattoos, um, I, I wish I wanted to get for years. And that's how I know to get a tattoo for like two, three years, that thought doesn't make yeah, my yeah. mind again. And I have very few, and and I've been searching for a font forever uh, until I was flipping through um, a print copy of Style Zeitgeist magazine where we did an article on Cerulli. And one of the photos had your font in it, and uh, it just hit me. That's the font. That's the font that I've been looking for. So one of my tattoos is the font was provided by Sruli Rapid. Design, I guess we can say that the design was provided by Sruli. So that's how intimate you are. Yeah. yeah you're, you're, uh, you're literally on my skin. Not on my foreskin, thankfully. But, but not on your skin, skin either. Well, I guess a little yeah. bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, how did you, you know, because your mind is so wide ranging, 
how did you get to clothing in the first place? Like, why not? I don't know. Why not furniture? Why not architecture? Why not sculpture? Why not perfume? Why not whatever artifact expression? Why clothing? Well, you know, clothing, working with clothing allows you to, to do all those things that you just described. Hmm. You look at someone like uh, Gaultier, he's done all of that stuff and well, usually, uh, very specifically, but also well. I think, uh, you know, I've been studying fine art and music all the way through education and it was, you know, was becoming aware that technically I could produce what I, what I was imagining, you know, I could produce very photorealistic oil painting, you know? but it was super fucking boring. The work, I mean, not the actual, um, the craft. And I was making these works and not really feeling like I had a voice at all. And I look back on the work and I still feel the same. It just wasn't, it wasn't doing anything new. It wasn't doing anything interesting. And I think this has been happening for a while. And, uh, I think it was what, 95 or 96. I was walking back from a rave and past a clothing store that just had, you know, stuff that you would look back on and kind of cringe at, but at the time was just, wow, really, really new to me. And it was a moment. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those moments that you that happens and you know, you know straight away, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. Cool. That was around the time that I was actually able to make clothing that I would wear. Mm -hmm. I think I was, what, 17 or something. And it was a challenge. It was a very exciting challenge to have to all of a sudden learn So much knowledge, <laughs> like so much <laughs> mathematical knowledge, intellectual knowledge, historical knowledge, and then physical knowledge, right? You have to learn to physically do these things. So it was very, very exciting. It was very exciting to have to teach myself to pattern make, have to teach myself to sew. Um, but, I, you know, I, I've never really had a problem learning things that I want to learn. So I learned fast. So you didn't go to you didn't go to fashion school. Oh, I, I did after that. After that, I um, okay. I don't know if I told you this story, but I I applied to the university, the fashion university, and they just rejected my application. It was like they didn't even they just looked at me. They didn't look at the work. <laughs> And they're like, as no, no, no. It's like, way, way, <laughs> no. 
Um, I could see in their eyes, it was just like, ah, oh, this dude's way, way too heterosexual for this, you know. That was like the terminology at the time. We didn't have the, um, the spectrum of descriptions that we have now. And um, they said, look, go away, learn to sew better, uh, do more things and then come back in a year. So I did. And I came back and they, they sent me, I think it's like a C note, you know, it's like you're the third. If the, the first group of people that we offer this to, if there's a space there and then the second group and then there's a space in the third group, then we'll, we'll call you. And then I got a call and they, let, they, they were like, yeah, you know, you can, uh, you can come in. I think it was on like maybe my second week, one of the, the interviewers, so I've got to see if I can remember exactly how they said this, comes up to me in the hallway and he says, um, don't mess this up. I'm like, that's not what I was planning to do. It's like, yeah, but just, you know, you're lucky to be here. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, been, been told that before, but that's all right, different context. <laughs> Like, okay, what, well, it's like, you know, you're a, you're a diversity hire. Oh, like, I don't think you're, I don't think you're using that term right, dude. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, you know, we have to have a quota of males. So we let you in. Like, oh, wow. Wow. Like wow, just wow, straight wow. up. Just like. Just like that. We have to have so a quota saying, of males. You don't really belong here, but... Very, very clearly, I don't belong here. Yeah, yeah that was funny. That guy was a, a real card. Yeah. <laughs> I seem to always come to loggerheads with educators who don't want to teach. Hmm. Oh, I, I know that story well. Yeah, but... it's sort of counterintuitive to the role, right? counterproductive to the role exactly um, I, listen, I, I learned a lot oh, yeah i learned a lot in that in that school i learned how to do things how not to do things um you know that's what and education people, is people and, underestimate that learning how not to do things how important that is oh abso absolutely yeah you know the one thing that we never really learned which I think is something that you have a good background in is uh, being financially intelligent, like understanding the fluidity of money, how it works, not just like creating a budget sheet and then looking at your uh, total production price and doubling it for wholesale. It's like, that's what we were taught, you know, but we weren't taught things like what's an asset, what's a debt, what's a liability. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. how to control interest, what mortgages actually mean and things like that and how that affects not just the company life, but the personal life. Yeah. Oh, well, You've got well, a background yeah, in finance, people, right? Yeah, I do. My first education is in finance. Uh, most people don't have that. And I think that's by design. I don't think the ruling class is interested in uh, a financially educated populace. So, but that's just my opinion. Do you think it's that simple? Uh, I really think that's part of it. Uh, if you taught people, like, look, if every person who came to get a mortgage 
right? If a banker told them that, and this is in the States, and I know it's rare in other countries, but in the States, you usually get a 30-year mortgage, right? Imagine what would happen if a person came to a banker and a banker was by law required to tell them that over the life of this loan, loan here, here's a million dollar mortgage. Over the life of this loan, you will end up paying us back three million because that's what you end up paying. You end up paying three times the amount of the mortgage. How many people do you think would take the mortgage out? I think it would be no. much less. I think it would be I think many, be much many less fewer too, but, people. But when a bank lends money, now I don't know if this is correct, but the Icelandic banks were telling me this, but then you know, Icelandic styles are a little bit different. When a bank lends money, they are essentially creating new money by doing that. Correct. Yeah. I'm doing the head exploding <laughs> emoji with my own face here. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the way the money travels is yes, uh, but yeah, if, if the if that, I just imagine your reaction. You come to a bank, you say, "I want to take out a million dollar mortgage," and they tell you, over the uh, life of that mortgage, thirty years, uh, you're gonna end up paying us three million dollars. I, I don't so know how people would. Feel about that. Do, do you advise people to not take loans then, just in general? Imagine what would happen if people stopped. The price of real estate would have gone down significantly. Now, I don't know if that means that builders would stop building, because <laughs> that could have, <laughs> that may be another, uh, um, may, that may be another set of problems. But what I do know is that there's a very small minority of people who have gotten very, very rich while many, many people have, well, probably to say enslave themselves is a bit far-fetched, but really have gone into financial instability and financial insecurity just, just to, to live at a house because American mythology requires you practically to buy a house well it's a very it's a very western concept that you need to own a house and a yard and uh yeah i don't feel like so, it's as european no. uh, not um, this. anyway yeah i don't know if this is a tangent we got off i don't know if we this is a part of the part fashion. it is, it is. <laughs> no no but, i don't see, want to do this part. I, th I think everyone needs to know these things but yeah go ahead well, earlier I was saying when we talked at the beginning of the pandemic, we both thought everything would change from it, but it hasn't. It's all, it's all sort of like snapped back like an elastic. Wait, right? did, did, did I say that things were going to change? I didn't think that things were going to change. I wrote, that for, I wrote for Business of Fashion that things are not going to change. Maybe I, maybe I said that. And you said this. I think I think it was I think it was you with the optimism. Um, but I but we did talk about uh, independence brand independent brands closing. That's right. Um, uh, but fashion but is yeah, important, no, I, right? Fashion's important. It's important to you. It's important to the people you speak to. 
Yeah. But is this is this economic model that we see, right? Sustainable is not the right word here, but is it smart to continue the speed that it's done it? it just because attention span has shrunk. Of course it's not smart. It's not only smart, it's not only not smart, it's unethical uh, and irresponsible. However, uh, it is the logic of capitalism requires that it has done so. Right, constant quarterly growth. Mm-hmm. And see, so you're not I going to see a lot. a lot of people. Yeah. And I think about it in the sense that as, as a creative, I love making. And the feeling that I get from making is similar pretty much when I'm in the moment, whatever I'm working on, I'm as excited and in that thing and how important that thing is as I could be for anything, no matter like whether it's a tiny part of some bigger object or whether it's a whole fashion collection. And I love making clothing. I really do love making clothing. And I do think, you know, would I do it again? Would I do another brand again? And it's a difficult one to answer. It really comes down to things like Infrastructure, I mean, ethics is kind of an obvious one, but, you know, if someone came to me tomorrow and said, you know, we'll take care of the the infrastructure and the logistics, you just get to create, that would be a hard thing to say no to. Of course. Yeah. It's essentially like like the patronage system. Yeah. Tell me, but you know, I, what I, I think love, you should. I love being told what to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm re- I'm realizing how it sounds, but you know, it's me. No, so no, I'm I really do. I, do. I really, anyway. I really love advice. You might be surprised um, by that, but uh, I just, I really think for creators like you, the way to do it is really to open and just the good old fashioned haute couture atelier and just do one offs for clients who come in and like. If I was a rock star, or today, if I was a hip-hop star, I'd be the one knocking on, on your door. So I think that's what you should be doing. Forget, you know, this whole industrial style production. It's never worked for you anyway. Um, but I think you could create absolutely astounding, made, you know, custom clothes for just musicians, artists. Uh, Do you think it's a strong economic model? I mean, does that... Have you ever seen where that actually works economically? Uh, creatively, I creatively mean, it's I, a no-brainer, right? I, I get it creatively, but in terms of yeah. making it work financially, because every time one of these celebrities comes in, they don't want to pay. Uh, well, that's already... That's a, that's a different story. I mean, they should come in with an understanding that you're not doing a charity project, and that, that he's, um, no, and they 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 do pay. Yep. Um, 
So it it, it really depends. Yeah, there are some. <laughs> yeah, there are some celebrities who think they should have everything for free and that they're doing you a favor just by wearing it. But in reality, uh, you know, why why not? Um, but anyway, so well, the only the only why not in a in a model like that is how to make it work financially. Because sure, we yeah, can't yeah, run we can't run fashion brands on. You know, nineteen-year-old interns and things like this. You know, it needs to be dedicated, no. advanced craftsmanship, right? Absolutely. But I okay. But I challenge, I challenge the audience to this sort of thing. You know, if there is a, if there is a model, tell me, tell me if there is a model to make this work because I haven't seen it yet. You know, your friends mm-hmm. who do do that sort of thing, I am pretty sure they're not. They're not lucrative. Like there might be a lot of, there might be a lot of turnover, but the actual profit margin is probably not so um, favorable. Mm, probably it has to be. I don't know. It has to no, be like. I, I a, mean, I, I'm not saying you should dedicate your entire career to this. I'm just saying that, you know, when I think of atelier, it could be like all-encompassing. But this should be just part of your body of work. Is that if a musician wants something special for their tour, they can come to you, you'll work with them and make a one-off. I don't think this should be like 100% of what you do. And no, I, I mean, it's a super fun thing to do, not. right? I it's would, super fun to do stuff like so. that. It's essentially creating a stage show or a performance. Seeing, seeing other people move in the things that you make or use the things that you make is very enjoyable. It's a very pleasurable experience to see people uh, take something from what you've made and bring it into their life. I I am sure of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, I listen. It's it's easy for me to say things like that because I'm not in the reality of it. I'm purely as an observer. Um, speaking purely, so anyway, but it's uh, a it's a good um, it's a good observation. I mean, the things that we want to do are not necessarily the things that we get to do. Oh yeah, <laughs> of course. I think the entire I mean the entire my entire life project has been from the moment I became not my entire life, but the from the moment I became conscious of it, my entire project has been trying to do as much as I can of what I want to do. What is that? trying to do as what little do you want to do? as... Uh, I want to... I want to write. Uh, I want to make a change in the way people see the fashion industry. I want to change the way people think. And I don't mean en masse. I mean, if even if I do it for one person, I think that's wonderful. And I want the freedom of choosing to write what I want to write about and express my thoughts and publish my thoughts. And yeah, I've, re- I've, I've really been doing that. Basically, not to be told what to do, but to tell myself what to do. 
It's difficult. Kind of, and, and not and not have not have authority over me. Maybe I've just read too much for code, but you know, I, I I do think that there's a constant society constantly tries to put authority over you in whatever way possible and limit your freedom. My entire project has been to limit that authoritarian streak of society as much as possible. Obviously, it's never entirely possible, but as, as much as I can. So, for example, not having, not, not having a boss, for example, right? That's, yeah, go ahead. As a critic, you are essentially an authority, right? You become an authority. Uh, provided that people listen to you, yeah. <laughs> yes. Sure. So, I mean, if people don't listen to you, you're not an authority, right? But if you have an audience, yes, you're somewhat an authority. And I think the degree of authority, authority comes from size and or quality of the audience. Uh -huh. You're a gateway, right? You become a gateway, in a sense, to that audience for uh, information. If, for uh, yes, on some level. If you, yeah, if you become a critic, that matters, yes. Okay, well, let's just assume we're talking about a critic that matters. Sure. And let's assume for a minute that's me, <laughs> which I don't presume, but okay. We can, we can play that. No, no, no. Okay, well, let's, let's put you in this place, right? So you have, a, you have a decision every day when people send you things for your um, attention, for your writing, for your websites, for whether you're writing for Business of Fashion or Hypebeast or that sort of Heisnabadi or Hypebeast? Which one do you write for? Both. Heisnabadi. Don't insult. Heisnabadi. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which, one, which one is it? I, the, the names Heisnabide, get mixed up in my Heisnabide. head. Okay, okay, okay. Heisnabadi. Relax, relax. Take a breath. It's cool. We're all friends. We're friends. <laughs> um, where was I going with this? I have an authority. I'm a gatekeeper. Uh, I've, been, I've been told all this before. Tell me something I don't know. What is the question? Why do well, I let I just, some things through and I don't let think other things through? No, that's pretty clear. That's a matter of taste. Um, well, maybe that's not the right word, but you know, you like it or you don't like it or you think it's important or you don't think it's important. But um, I actually wonder how important you think it is. I don't know how to phrase this, right? So let's say an artist or a brand makes something and it's not presented by the media. It's not presented by a gallery. Do you think it has less cultural value if it's not? Okay, this is, this is the question. If an artist releases work, whether it's fashion design or product or whatever, um, and it's not presented in a gallery or a showroom or by a magazine, is it, as, is it less culturally relative, re relevant? Yes, it is less culturally relevant because there's no audience for it. Yeah. 
if if art does not exist in a conversation with an audience, what is what is its value? Except for the person who created it. So then you have a choice every day where it comes to you to kind of make a decision about whether it should be important in that cultural context. Do you Correct. feel like that? Uh, on some level, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not leading you into some kind of trap here. This is, I'm just curious. No, 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 you should. It. Yeah, no, actually, you should. Um, no, uh, on, on some level, uh, yeah, I do. I just, uh, I imagine the weight on some, on like a New York Times art critic is probably much heavier than it is on me. Um, because there is because only so much space. I, no, because the audience is vast and the authority is graver. Uh, whereas a, I write about fashion, uh, which on some level is not as important and we can get into it or not get into it. Uh, and... And also my audience is fairly limited. Although, you know, when I write the, when I write about the business of fashion, the high snobody, of course, it's a much bigger audience. Uh, but I also, I don't do hatchet jobs. Like I've turned down some, like people have come to me and said like, hey, can you write? basically how much you don't like designer A, and I would refuse. I would say like, well, why would I do that? That's not why I write. Is that an ethical thing? Or is that more that you know that your opinion sways the audience opinion? Uh, it's more of, yeah, there is criticism and then there is a hatchet job, right? And, and, and they're different things. I'm not here to bury anyone. Um, if I so, turn one person away from buying dumb Balenciaga hoodies, yes, I'll be happier for it. But that, you know, I'm not going to do it. Like, I'm not going to do a hatchet job because it's just not what I do. But you're aware. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, that was pretty obvious. I've never really seen you do that. But, um, you know, Supreme is kind of like a, a low-hanging fruit there that doesn't really need much criticism to to point it out. But so Yeah, you're aware and I've, how I mean, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, but you're aware how important your opinion is in the rise of new brands, right? Obviously, larger brands are much more difficult to affect audience opinion, but when a new brand comes out, you, you must know that a positive piece is going to have a positive outcome or not. Is it not that uh, simple? You know, really, I don't know if I do have that authority, to be honest. Uh, maybe, but I don't think so. Like, I think... An article on BOF would be a much bigger presence. But yeah, there have been brands who have come to me, knocked on my door many times, and I 
And I said, no. To write a puff piece for money. No, 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 not a puff piece, but just, you know, presenting their work, uh, wanting me to write about it. And I would say, sorry, like, this is not, this is not for us. It's a tricky, it's a tricky position that you're in. You think so? Well, I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's easy to be writing in a public forum an opinion about people's creative output. It's obviously never exactly what they want it to be because of the limitations of time and economy. Sure. Um, and the market itself. I mean, I, I know that we tried to kind of like work with the market. Not really, <laughs> but you know, when people say they want black t-shirts, you know that they want you to be part of the market, right? Um, yeah. But I've seen in the sort of the earlier years of the the forum, I, I, I saw how your your opinion could change after you'd met the designer and become yeah, yeah, positive listen, of or course. vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And yes. how that would influence yeah, yeah. the the rise of a brand. You know, I think a lot of the brands... Yeah, no, that, sure, 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 sure. Listen, there, there are brands that you know, Carol Christian Powell, Carpet Zian, Paul Harden, uh, Jeffrey B. Small. Like, there is no question that we have absolutely contributed to their popularity. Uh, only one of them has acknowledged it. <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. Do you, because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully uh, quite upfront about how grateful me and the people that I work with are to everything that you've ever written because it it always has an oh, effect. I Not know an that. economic effect necessarily, but you know, I hope I hope you know that we appreciate it. But I do wonder how many brands are aware of that sort of thing. And oh, oh, yeah. oh, uh, they're, they're they're very much aware. They just their egos won't their egos won't let them. You know that's that's not how they operate, and it's fine. Okay, so we you know, we circle back to the the first sort of question of this, right? Is that you you are aware that uh, cultural presence is important, and cultural presence happens when it's represented by media, whether that's a gallery or a magazine or a website. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, the name is style zeitgeist for a reason, right? <laughs> it's the very because you want people to not be able to spell your website or. That too, by the, that was by design, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm gonna I'm make it still difficult for you, motherfuckers. Still, I still yeah. mess it up. It's fine. I, I wonder. I do wonder how many times. I do wonder how many times I have like done things that are purposefully difficult, purposefully not lucrative, purposefully whatever. I was just I was just talking about it today with someone, you know, before Grail started, at least two different parties came to me with the same proposal. I'm like, and you said no shit, to I could have been rich. I could have been rich by now. <laughs> and I've said no to both because I didn't want to monetize classifieds. They basically came in and said, like, that's how Grail came up, right? It's a monetization yeah, totally, totally. of yeah. forums, classifieds. And at least two people came to me 
pretty much with models ready, software ready, and said, like, let's go into business together. Like, let's monetize classifieds. And Dude. I said, no, I said, I don't, I don't want to charge people for selling stuff. And in retrospect, you know, I'm like, I would have been rich by that? now, but I'm not. Do you regret that decision? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. Of course I don't regret it because I can pay my rent and uh, I sleep well at night, which is important for me. This sort of comes back to the idea of uh, economic motivation. And that sort of becomes clear in the, the fashion stuff that I was making is that it was not economically motivated. It was not right. made, maybe I actually don't know how to do it because I don't think it's necessarily a choice, right? If you look at music, you can't just say, why doesn't that person make a number one hit? Because you can't just mm. choose to do that. There are so many factors involved and the same comes with clothing. You can't just sure. make clothing that people want. It sort of is part of the actual zeitgeist those sort of things come in and out. And when, um, what was that store in the UK that was copying all of the Rick stuff? What were they called? You had a thing on your site. You had a thing on your site that if people worked for this store, they had to pay some exorbitant fee for an account. Do you remember what it was? Some, sp not Spitalfields. Um... Oh, 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 um, All Saints. All Saints, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see yeah how that of course, model. yeah. Oh, man, they owe me a lot of money for all the shit yeah. they've been knocking off that we've been posting on SZ, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, but you can see how people can I take mean, they had everything model. from Rick Cohen's, they had everything from Rick Cohen's knockoffs to Julius knockoffs, knockoffs yeah. to Paul Harden knockoffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, but do you think, go ahead. Do you think the people who were buying those clothes knew that from All Saints? Uh, some did, but most did not, I'm sure. But some did. And uh, look, I don't blame them exactly because the real thing is very expensive. So It's super weird. I mean, I get Instagram ads from uh, a lot of the stores, like the Hong Kong stores and the Austrian stores, and they're, um, they're trying to sell me, uh, you know, like a 1,300 euro hoodie. And I, I do think to myself, who is the market for this? Like, was there ever really a market for that sort of, of thing? Yeah. Is it a yeah, big yeah, market, do you think? For, for what? For the real thing or for the knockoff? No, the real thing. The real thing. Um, big enough for some brands to do well. Because... Look, the other side of it is cost, right? Because if you look at someone like Paul Harden, you know, the dude's been making same clothing for the past 25 years. Patterns don't change. His team is probably like three people, right? So he can be in 25 stores in the world and make you know, a decent amount of money. Yeah, I sort of get caught up in this idea of scalability quite a bit because scalability is what affects the, the consumer end and the production end price of the, the fashion object, right? So when, when Paul is making work and there's three of them doing it, the, the model for scalability is not so great. So you can see why there's exclusivity, high wage cost, 
um, yeah, all exactly. passed on to but the But he doesn't user. need to scale. He doesn't need to scale because he keeps the cost down. So it's that, I mean, we all know that, right? It's that break when you have, when you start getting popular and you have to make that jump to scalability, just one or two seasons when you produce much more than you produced before. And then that could be just one season when you don't get paid from stores and you have your own bills to pay, they can break your brand, right? We've all seen that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we experienced all that. Yeah. So... In a way, all these very few cult labels, and they can be very few cult labels, and there can no longer be new cult labels like they are because those labels came up in a different era. Uh, they can do it, you know, and it's really just two left, just like Paul Harden and um, Carol Christian Paul. I don't think there could be another cult brand today like that. Just because there will is be it a big team at Carol, or is it also quite a small team? I think it's just two people, and they just outsource the manufacturing of everything. Hmm. This is, um, I know we sort of keep swinging back to economics, but it's essentially fashion economics. This is where. Uh, product design and fashion design take a very, very different path. Product design has a moderately heavy upfronted development cost and then a potentially endless ongoing retail sale return for as long as you want to keep the product active or for as long as it's relevant. Fashion has a very heavy upfront seasonal development cost and then like a two-week sale window mm-hmm. for the brand, right? Does that make sense? Of course not. Of course not. But there's so much that doesn't make sense in this industry that I don't even know where to start. Are we just okay with that? Do we just kind of like gloss over it or...? We're not okay. Like, where would you begin? About where it? Would like, you I've, begin? Been, I've been, yeah. Oh, I've, I mean, truly, that battle is lost, right? Like, let's begin at the beginning. But if you want, let's say if we live in an idealistic world, I would do two things. Number one, educate the consumer about two things. Uh, you know we live in a very, very new system as far as fashion goes, right? As far I mean, as what system? A very new system, you know. Yeah. Seventy years ago, you everyone bought a few things a season, and everyone was fine with that. There was never an idea that you have to wear a different outfit every day of the week that repeating an outfit is a some kind of a social crime this is a very new idea and this was a concerted effort on the part of fashion to speed up the economic cycle and make a lot of money so that's that uh so i would try to change that idea in minds of consumers and another idea that must be radically changed is 
the idea of what's affordable. Now, to me, affordability is partly a function of how much money you have in your wallet and partly is what's in your brain. And I think the most pernicious crime of fast fashion is not the landfills. The landfills are the results. The waste is the result. The most pernicious idea is convincing the consumer that everything else in terms of pricing is too expensive compared to fast fashion. Because if you're used to buying $5 t-shirt, a $50 t-shirt is expensive. You may very well easily afford it in terms of function of how much money you have in your wallet, but you're not going to do that because you have been conditioned by fast fashion that a $50 t-shirt is too expensive. We all know these people. They're everywhere. They're in my family. They're everywhere, right? So these are the two biggest crimes, um, buying cheaply and buying a lot. So if we can convince the consumer somehow to change those two behaviors, I think we're going to be well on the way. So you think it's more on the responsibility of the consumer than the producer? Of course. How, because how's the producer going to change their mentality? They're driven by uh, the logic of the capitalist system. So if you look at what's happening with things like the uh, fossil fuel industry, where the you know, like BP and Shell have flipped the conversation to say, it's not about us drilling, it's about you using. You need to use less. You need to recycle. We'll just keep making the stuff and you can buy it, but it's actually up to you to deal with the things that we make in a better way. Because when you it's, describe it the way so you describe it, I actually think it might be the responsibility of the producer to choose not to make throwaway fashion. Okay, so one hundred years ago, of course, of course. But 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 are we sorry? But are we talking about something realistic, or are we talking about the ideal world? Because I don't know in the history of capitalist economy, I don't know of a single company who said we're going to make an ethical choice and we're going to stop making what we're making or we're going to start making less of it, etc., etc. All of the choices, as far as I know, I'm sure there's an exception or two, is either is driven by economic realities. And part of that economic reality is the consumer pressure or public pressure. Has any single, for example, has any single tobacco company came out and said, you know what, what we're doing uh, harms people's health. It, uh, it costs our economy incredible amount of money in terms of healthcare costs. We are literally killing people. You know, we're going to be good guys and we're just going to stop making cigarettes. Or, or was it public pressure that there's a third option the third option is uh wartime ration protocol from world war two i think maybe it was world war one the government steps in and says for the war effort we need the material and we need the metal so we're going to stop uh allowing you to make certain things right so the government steps in and it says 
a man's pocket can't be wider than 16 centimeters, a woman's pocket 12 centimeters, hems are this long, jackets are this long. And they actually mm. bring in laws that tell you how much fabric you're allowed to use per person per garment. And this is where the zoot suit riots begin because you've got these people using excessive amounts of fabric during a war ration protocol. And the police and sailors are sent to step in and sort of stop this thing happening, right? Seems to me maybe mm -hmm. the only way to do it is for this third option to step in where rationing happens. Because right now, the way you describe it is the way I also understand it. Pretty much anybody can get a bank loan, can purchase ore, can purchase any type of resource, refine, manufacture it into a product, ship it around the world, put it in a warehouse until it's ready to sell, cool and heat that warehouse, continuing to use resource. And then one day these t-shirts ship to a store and then they go on sale and they end up in landfill. So there's no, um, uh, there's no what like gates or stop gaps to create some kind of like conscious approach to not doing that because any brand can produce as much as they can afford to produce. They can yeah. fill high street stores with, you know, $2 t-shirts that they know are not going to sell, but also know that there's going to be enough profit in selling them that they can dump 200,000 t-shirts. Sure. And it's um, why when I look at... Yeah. But it's also why... That I, shit you know, will I can never fly in America. But it, this is Sorry, America that this used to happen. No, no, but... It won't this, fly again, yeah, but it did. Historically, it has happened. In in wartime, yes, but only in wartime. There is no way in hell this could. It could happen in Europe, right? Remember, it was the Euro European. It was France that passed the law that you cannot burn excess clothes, right? Because that's what a lot of luxury brands used to do oh to keep, God, keep so up crazy. the illusion of scarcity. They burn clothes. No way in hell in America would a law like that pass. Because of greed. Wartime is different. Because of greed, because you know, because business is the lifeblood and the religion of America. Yeah, and but this you, experiment you is failing. Go, uh, no one gives a shit as well, long see, I get, as... I get that. I get that. Yeah, as long as some capitalists get enriched uh, yeah. and they buy the government, no one's going to care. Why Why did we, as long as the children who are making these sweatshop clothes are not our children, no one's going to give a fuck because yeah, people Yeah, so it's the elsewhereism, right? Yeah, exactly. Because people act in their own self-interest by and large. That's just the way. So I wonder when the, the climate emergency, climate crisis will become obvious enough to change that because it's essentially not that different to war. That's how many people are dying. Correct. Uh, when when it will be on a truly on the doorstep of the wealthy ruling class. Didn't this happen to you guys in New York a few years ago? In what sense? Wasn't there some crazy storms and blackouts and almost tidal? surges we had a blackout but it wasn't yeah. that i mean I, like i'm talking about school, right? 
like California wildfires to me is a bit more close, like because that's been happening regularly, like once a year, like every year. Hmm. Fire season. That that yeah, that to me seems like a more relevant thing. But I don't know. I feel like it's going to be too late by the time. Because it's just so esoteric. It's so abstract what's happening, right? How do you put it in front of people's eyes and really tell them, like, this is real? One of the things that's interesting about the way we sort of approach uh, mass cultural change and behavior is very reflective. It's a hindsight thing. We start doing something, and then about 100 years later, we look back and go, Oh, that didn't work out so yeah. well. Yeah, there is whaling, yeah, for exactly. example. Whaling was one of yeah. those things. We're like, hey, look at all this free oil, and like a hundred years later, like, eh, there's no more whales left. Yeah, yeah. Well, but that's the thing, right? It was too abstract. Like, you can't see unless it's a fucking whale on your doorstep. You know, like an yeah. average person is not going to understand what it is that you know they're not acting in. A, best interest and just to go back to those two problems that i said you know affordability and the frequency of purchasing if we just change that so that would be your advice right not eight seasons a year try to try two oh even one just like make it make make clothes for both winter and summer you know I, I get the seasonability thing. I do. I do understand that. Um, but just, and it's not even, you know, when we were making the store, right, the question of sustainability came up. And I said, we are already in the most sustainable segment of the industry. Because there are many fewer people who are going to buy a $1,000 coat and treat it cavalierly, right? You're going to think twice about sending a $1,000 coat to a landfill. A $50 coat, you're not really going to think about it twice, right? The amount of, like, I forget the statistics, but they're absolutely insane of how much unworn clothes goes into the refill. But we did a whole episode on that with uh, Elizabeth Klein. It's out there for listeners. We did a whole episode on sustainability. And anyway, as usual with Sruli, we wanted to talk about your work. And then we <laughs> went on a bunch of philosophical Okay, tensions. let's talk about some work. Um... <laughs> Do you want to know what I'm doing next? What I'm doing now? You want to talk about yes. past stuff? Yes, yeah. What do you, that, what do you that's, want? That's what we started with. I want to know what you've done in the past. We know it's been well covered by Style Zeitgeist, and everyone should go on swoolyreg.com and take a look at the work because the work is incredible. Uh, by the way, I'm still waiting for my in- incense holder. When is that coming? Because um, I finally have incense to burn. The, the one for the Noguchi Museum? Yes. He didn't send it to you? Motherfucker. All no. Right. I'll, I'll take care I, of it. Uh, I'm kidding. Half kidding, <sighs> because it is a gorgeous object. Um, what and, and what I love, I'm just going to make a tangential. It's not a tangential note. It's an essential note. 
the sh just the shape of the objects that you produce from the Norland whiskey glass and carafe to the luxury of choice to pretty much everything else. I am always incredibly impressed just by the very shapes that you produce. Thank you. And that's what that's fascinates me most about you, about your mind, where I think not in a million years I could come up with that. Well, I'm sure you could just by chance, but thank you. I've had several interns and um, uh, assistants, and let me start that question again. I've had several creative partners, uh, whatever part of the uh, hierarchical system that they're in, say the following to me. You design backwards, you design upside down. For most people, uh, form follows function, but for you, function follows form. Um, that's probably true. I do see the body as the starting point for absolutely everything, whether it's furniture or clothing, whether it's a glass, the body comes first. How will the body initially reach to touch it, to smell it, to look at it, to taste it? I have a habit of tasting most things that I make or pretty much everything, actually. I think uh, smell in particular is the final frontier of product design. So I've always been very... Uh, interested in the smell of books, the smell of a jacket, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. I was actually kicked out of Le Clareur first time I was in there for smelling a jacket. That was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> the girl ran up and said, what are you doing? I think you should leave right now, um, which was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, so where was I going with that? Was it going anywhere? I do not uh, make things easily, right? The way that you describe that you, you've made choices that don't necessarily make things easier for you. I yeah. could design in an easier way, but I wouldn't enjoy it. It would look like everything else that exists already. The semiotics and the language of, of the object, it would be recognizable. So I'm going to show you one of the foreskins. Are you ready? Yes. But the audience can't see this, but they may. So this is one of the foreskins. Oh. Much more vulvic, not language that's driven by the idea of the foreskin, but more as an accessory object, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know where those shapes come from, but they come. And I draw and they come, or I sculpt and they come, or I use uh, virtual reality 3D modeling and they come. And they come because they're performative actions. You know, you start to move with an object and forms start to come out of it. And I've been using virtual reality 3D modeling much more in the past year because there's a, an immediacy to what you're doing. It is very much like folding mm -hmm. paper, which is what I love to do. So in the last um, pandemic period, because of the lockdown, I've had to work much more like this through the computer. And I'm involved in a few uh, startups that are, they follow this kind of logic. New material, new design from that material, narrative to tell that story. It's like a triangle. Material, mm -hmm. design, narrative. So about, uh, what, I think eight years ago, we began the mycelium leather trend by funding a lab to produce it. And I'm still working on a new project that's uh, mycelium-based. Uh, mycelium, you know what that is, obviously, but for anyone who doesn't, mycelium is the fruiting body of uh, mushrooms. 
And you can grow that and bioengineer that into different things. So we're working with a, a shoe brand to do that. Um, initial launch. And I have another project that is using machine learning and body dynamics to create objects for health. I can't get too far mm -hmm. into that one. Um, the reason why I am where I am right now is I'm growing houses from seawater. It's a process that wow. biomimetically copies the way coral builds its skeleton. And using this process, we can essentially create a concrete-like material, limestone, on uh, charged forms. So this will begin probably with furniture, which I'm going to try and sell to your store, and then uh, houses oh. and other types of objects that move through that. Um, we still work with the transparent leather stuff, but it's very much dominated by the the more fashion-related things. But uh, on another project, we're working to create transparent leather furniture, which I'll also send to your store. Um, <laughs> and then the other things are, are sort of more cultural um, commentaries on the thing that I mentioned before, the the idea of uh, we we sort of only realize a little bit too late. And these are things that, uh, I don't know if I'm getting too into the weeds here, but it's an object that changes your circadian rhythm from oh. the rhythm of Earth to the rhythm of Mars. And as you travel from Earth to Mars, uh, this object incrementally changes your rhythm day by day. And so that when you arrive to Mars, you don't have planet lag. Uh, could you do something for jet lag first, please? You know, try. In solving more immediate problems. Could try. <laughs> but then I'd have to do something commercially viable on what people actually want, right? <laughs> yeah, who needs if that there's, If there's someone out there <laughs> listening to this that actually wants to make, uh, you know, economic pathways in any of these things, reach out to Eugene. He'll take a slice. Two yeah, points. Yeah, uh, exactly. 20%. Yeah. So it's a lot of... Um, cool, man. A lot of sort of heavy uphill stuff at the moment that will sort of one day come out looking like clothing or shoes or objects mm -hmm. or houses. I like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's always felt to me like you are creating the future without making it look retro-futuristic. Yeah, I mean, the future happens one day. Which is hard right? to do. Yeah. yeah. Which is hard to do, right? Because it's all a product of a human mind at a given time and space. You know what? Okay. You know what I'm trying to do sometimes is, you know, when you see an object and it has a very high resolution of finish, it's an object that's obviously been made by many factory processes, looks super beautiful and refined. And by looking at it, you know that there must be hundreds of thousands of these made to make the economy of it work. There's a whole industry behind mm -hmm. this one little object. I like to make objects that tell that same story, but are from an alternate uh, behavioral idea that make you ask that question. So that's why when you look at something like the luxury of choice, you see high finish, 
what looks like factory finish mm-hmm. or like sort of like high-end artisanal finish, gives the idea that this must be a real thing. But where is this reality? Like where is this alternate reality where this uh, behavioral system is part of it? Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, could never really get that. And those objects are right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's true. Those objects, I. I can tell you, I can congratulate you on achieving that effect because when I look at those objects, I always wonder like which manufacturer that's really go to, to produce that because it is produced. Like, I feel like, oh, you got to go to an equivalent of an iPhone factory because sometimes, that's the, yeah, that's the but level hey, of finishing that I'm seeing. But isn't that the most important thing, right? Everything is theater, right? Design is a performance. A fashion show is a theatrical event, right? So you're an audience. And in each of these situations where you're being presented an object or a show or a film or whatever it is, what, what I hope to do is surprise you. In whatever sort of like variation that is, whether that's like, how the fuck did you make this? Or, you know, like, mm-hmm. what is this idea? If you can sort of design or not design, because that sort of makes it a bit intentional, but achieve that element of surprise from the receiver or the audience, that's always super important to me. Otherwise, it's like yeah. just the same shit. You know, innovation, the currency of innovation is being first. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just like the other yeah. dude. So to be able to yeah. create something that changes the way people think and surprises them and I guess makes them uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. 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 And I'll, I'll, and on that note, you exactly, uh, you anticipated the last point I want to make about your work, which I absolutely love. And then we'll let it go at that. It's unsell- it's unsettling. A lot of your work is unsettling. Uh, it's uncomfortable. And I am absolutely for it because that's the stuff that makes you think. And why I was wondering if you've gotten a lot of slack for what you do is that people don't like being made uncomfortable. They don't, but I think we have a... Um... It's, it's a taboo, right? So taboo comes from the, I think, Fijian word, uh, not to touch, do not touch. So holy items were considered taboo because you weren't supposed to touch them. But we are fascinated with what we're not allowed to do. And, you know, you clearly have an element of oppositional defiance. I, you can't be rebellious or try doing new things if, if you don't have sort of any kind of oppositional defiance, right? You need to be like, well, hang sure. on, that's not, that's not how I want to do it. And the things that make me most uncomfortable are also the things that excite me as well. Like new Mm -hmm. awkward situations are so intense and challenging, whether it's in a film or whether it's in person or whether it's an object. uh, It's a really unique way of telling a story. I hope it doesn't become a trope, but it's probably also why, you know, fashion collections are not the right thing for me because meaning is not the most important thing at the moment the meaning of mm-hmm. the garment is it no it's more like who's <laughs> which celebrity is 
is wearing it for 20 seconds on a red carpet or something like this. I think fashion, the meaning of fashion has changed quite a bit over the last decade uh, from social media. You know, when we learned fashion 20 years ago, pre-internet images, you had to go to the library and in the library was like a book on Gaultier, a book on tribal art, a book on uh, Miyake. And that was like, that was the bar. The bar was these three books. Mm-hmm. So you could always get above that. But now it's, it's very different. And with augmented reality fashion, soon you won't know what's real anymore. Um, yeah. But being able to achieve that level of high quality in the finish of the work and beautiful photography, let me not skip over how important Modano's photography is to what I've I made. I was just like, thinking about it. I, I mean, was I should have mentioned it earlier. About it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I was just go just going through your website. I was thinking yeah. what incredible photography. His, his work not only changed the way the work was seen by the audience, but seen by me. He showed my work back to me in a way that I didn't know what it looked like. And the first time he did it, he came into the studio and he was like, um, he was in the studio next door. I thought he was homeless. He thought I was a drunk. Um, one of those were true. I'm not going to tell you which. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was like, can I shoot some of your things? And I was like, ah, I don't think so, man. I just, you know, I've got my way of shooting it. And let me say my way of shooting it sucked. It sucked. It was so bad. But I thought it was the right way to do it. And he came back a few days later and he gave me a CD. That's how you did it back then with photos on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at these photos. and I'm like, what is this? It's so bad. But it's stuck in my mind because it made me uncomfortable because I didn't recognize it anymore. It didn't look like the intention that I had put mm-hmm. into the object. And that was when I realized this is how it had to be shot. He was shooting object like fashion. And it's incredible. Mario Tolasius's work is, is is phenomenal. There's never I've never worked with anyone else who can do what he does. Um, I don't direct him. I don't tell him what to do. He just does his thing, and I find what's in there. Um, but it is very very important to pay for good photography because most fashion yeah. is consumed visually on the phone, mm-hmm. on the computer. You don't. You know, I mean, I haven't been into a fashion store for a long time, but we don't consume clothing anymore by touching it. We consume it by ordering it online and then sending it back if it doesn't fit, for the most part, right? So, you know, his photography was amazing. I'm really, really grateful to everything that, or every minute that he's put into, into it. No, I agree. I mean, the photos, uh, I, it's exactly what I was thinking as I was going through your website in preparation for uh, for the show. And I thought the photography is absolutely stunning. But that's it. It's and great it photographers. Really it's it's people like you who who will always be there to promote the work and give feedback and, you know, move it forward. It's don't, I don't think people realize... Not, it's not like gratitude, right? But I just don't think people realize how many other people are always there to help and help them in ways that may not be as black and white as giving you money to do your art. But the positivity that people put in 
I don't know how many people are aware of it. I mean, but it's a lot, even for small uh, there brands. There certainly, I, yeah, I could certainly name a few designers uh, who could have benefited from your way of thinking, but that would be in bad pace to do it publicly. Well, the reality is uh, anyway, you don't have to do it. I don't. You d yeah. No, you don't I have do, to publish yeah. the work, right? Um, no. Yeah. But in any case, on that positive note, uh, all I've been waiting for these two hours is for you to compliment me. So this is the right way. This is the right moment to stop. Thank you very much. Well, you're one of my favorite people <laughs> in the world. Be and for, for many reasons, but most of them is because you don't, uh, what's that old school term? You don't suffer fools gladly. You know, it's just... Life, life is very, very long, but also very, very short. It passes very quickly. And the people that you know, I guess I've learned more and more how much, how much you need to be grateful for them. So thank you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And Thanks likewise, me. I mean, listen, it's my pleasure. And I have to say, now is the time for me to say, Yes, I hate a lot about the fashion industry, but I've also met the most incredible people, such as yourself. Creative, kind, interesting, honest, incredibly knowledgeable. I've learned a lot. And I think that's the note we should end on. Wonderful. Say so, hello to your wife. Thank you for coming for on, Struly. Thanks for having Will me. Will do. Likewise, say hi to Mag. Um, Will do. And uh, thank you. Bye, Talk everybody. Soon. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave, Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening.